Myriad Genetics proudly presents the Modern Urologist Podcast. This casual yet educational podcast is committed to keeping you informed on all things urology so you can continue to provide the highest level of care for your patients. Hello and welcome to the Modern Urology Podcast. My name is Dr. Mark Edney and it's my honor to take over the hosting duties from Dr. Todd Cohen, who's a good friend who's moved on to other duties. A little background on myself. Uh, I am a senior physician with Chesapeake Urology Associates, which is a member of the United Urology Group. I practice in Salisbury, Maryland. I have uh, quite a bit of experience in policy and advocacy in the business of urology. I've uh, in the past held positions on the AUA's Legislative Affairs Committee. Uh, I was a past Gallagher Scholar. I've held, uh, held several terms on the AUA's Public Policy Council. I'm a past president of the American Association of Clinical Urologists. I'm currently chair of the AUA State Advocacy Committee. Uh, I am the editor of the Business of Urology section of the Urology Practice Journal, and I'm, in fact, I'm chair-elect of the Public Policy Council. So in just a little bit in terms of my background and what I bring to this podcast, uh, I wanted to uh, let the listeners know it's my intent to continue to drive this podcast in a, in a positive direction the way Dr. Cohen has, and to really bring to you critical thought leaders in the House of Urology, from a, from a business and policy and, and advocacy perspective, uh, the people who are on the ground every day uh, doing the work for the practicing urologist. And I want to be asking the questions that you want answered. I want you to let, let me know if there are questions that, that you have that weren't answered. And please let me know if there are future guests that you'd like to hear interviewed on this podcast. I really want this to be a, a service. Uh, to the practicing urologists out there, we're doing this for you. I want to provide you valuable information, and I don't want to waste your time. And so that's, uh, that's what I'm about. I am very honored and grateful to our first guest of this new phase of the modern urologist to, uh, to welcome uh, Ray Wesick. Ray is the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the American Urologic Association. Ray holds a Juris Doctorate degree from Tulane University Law School and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and Criminal Justice from Roanoke College. Ray and I have worked together uh, through our roles in the AUA over the last couple of years, and I've, I've found him to be an incredibly insightful and very effective advocate uh, for the House of Urology, for the AUA in general. And so I'm happy to welcome him. Ray, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Edney. I'm really honored to be here. Really appreciate it. And after listening to your introduction, I can't believe you have time to do this podcast. <laughs> I, I fit things into the into the cracks uh, uh, here and there. So I'm um, happy to do it. And so let me start out by asking you, I mean, certainly far more specific and better than me introducing you and what you do. Let me let you introduce yourself and describe your role at the AUA. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I kind of sit in a very interesting place within the AUA. I was brought on board because of my experience with patient advocacy. I actually worked for a patient advocate organization called the International Myeloma Foundation for about six years. Um, I was a director of policy and advocacy there. Uh, and we really were working to uh, you know, improve the lives of patients and find a cure for myeloma. But I also have a law degree, uh, and I'm actually a bar attorney in the state of Maryland. And so a lot of my experience also sits in the realm of lobbying. Um, I did work for very briefly for a lobbying firm and, and just have had a, a desire and interest around politics for quite some time. And so when the opportunity arose with the AUA uh, to come on board, so what I actually do is twofold. On one hand, I have the patient advocacy and research advocacy side of things. We have a manager there. Uh, who helps me run that side of the house. We have three alliances. We have a prostate cancer impact alliance, a kidney cancer impact alliance, and a bladder health alliance. 
We also run a patient advocacy connections program that's sort of in conjunction with the annual urology summit. Um, and we missed you there this year, but I know uh, you had good reason not to be there. And what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the over 75 patient advocacy organizations that we work with involved in the activities and interests of the AUA and urologists and help where we can sort of dovetail those interests to leverage everybody's voices and actually become better advocates together. Because what we've always heard when we go up to the Hill or we go to state legislatures is, oh man, we, we've heard from these patient groups and you guys care about the same things. And you know what, now that we're hearing from both sides of the coin, we can see why this is so important. It makes a huge difference. The other thing I do, um, and, and what would probably be of interest for this podcast, uh, centers around physician payment reimbursement. So uh, Ruck and CPT, uh, I actually handle both of those teams that go up uh, talk with the AMA and have conversations about values and codes, um, how you know different procedures should be coded, uh, how they should be described, edits to those CPT codes, and then how to actually value them. Interestingly enough, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road with CMS, because while the AMA both owns the CPT codes and they're actually copyrighted by the AMA, CMS can decide whether or not they want to accept those values uh, at any time. And so it's kind of some, it's a strange sort of dance where we do a lot of work um, meeting about three times a year for both Ruck and CPT uh, to develop a lot of this, you know, everyday sort of utilization for billing. It's about 70, I think it's about 76 or 78% of codes are actually accepted for value at this point, going down from what was in the eight, like the 80 percentile uh, previously. So that's pretty fascinating. You know, we also handle uh, when the fee schedule comes out, sort of looking at the fee schedule, how that'll impact urology, um, kind of giving a quick drill down to everyone, uh, everyone being our AUA members, uh, so they understand how this might impact them in their practice, if they might make changes to their practice, what that might need to be. And then we provide comments to uh, CMS uh, within the 90-day comment period uh, on our opinion about changes we would like to have. Um, sometimes, and this has happened in the last two years, we've actually met with CMS directly before the end of the comment period to uh, have a, a bit of a conversation, really, uh, about you know our, our viewpoint on specific things. And those have become increasingly valuable. And I, I've always really appreciated CMS you know, taking that time to talk to us and, and um, you know evaluating that feedback. It's, it seems to be beneficial for them. So that's kind right. of it in a nutshell, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And that's really a broad scope of, of responsibility. I want to tease apart, you know, the, the, the CPT coding and, and it's, that's, that's a, a statistic I've heard before is that, you know, historically a very large proportion of, of uh, CPT valuations was accepted by CMS and that number is dropping. Do you have a sense of why over time that's dropping? I mean, there are budgetary constraints and fiscal constraints, which appear to be worsening, you know, at the federal level. I mean, that's certainly one thing that's obvious. Is there anything, you know, you know sort of, you know, from an insider perspective behind the scenes that, that you get a, you know, can glean that, that may also be contributing? You know, I, I'm not 100% sure anything I would kind of come up here with would be totally conjecture, but I, I feel sometimes as if CMS is trying to feel out process. They're there at the table during RUC and CPT, so they're a part of that process uh, on the floor. And sometimes they, they just tend to disagree, uh, and they feel like they have a better process for valuing a certain code, or they might be looking at trying to keep costs low for the entire system, because as we know, um, you know, budget neutrality is very difficult when they made uh, updates to uh, the clinical labor inputs, um, when we look at that sort of large formula that, that sits across the board for RUC, it makes things difficult, really, to kind of play well within the, the parameters that they're given to operate. And I do not envy uh, them at all, um, you know, when it comes to trying to make that all work. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, and as we advocate for CMS to accept these, these CPT codes and sort of 
advocate for ourselves. I mean, the AUA recognizes that there were a very large international organization, but particularly in the United States, there are a couple other significant advocacy organizations in the House of Urology that it's important that we collaborate with. So um, we've done a lot of work over the years. We've worked very well with, with LUGPA, um, who, it, with whom we share a lot of very common advocacy goals, and the AACU for that matter, um, which is the nation's oldest and most historic advocacy organization. So um, can you speak to a little bit about the importance of, of collaboration within the House of Urology when we approach a CMS with, with, with these sorts of asks? Oh, it's incredibly important. Um, so we we work, as you said, very closely with LUGPA and AACU as, as a former AAC president. Uh, you would know that. And we really uh, want to make sure that whatever we are saying to CMS is with a unified voice, because the worst thing that could happen is that a proposed rule comes out, whether that's OPPS, IPPS, uh, the fee schedule. And we say we all say something slightly different uh, because then CMS starts to get mixed signals. Um, they don't quite know who uh, is right or who might be wrong. And it's not that's really a disservice to everybody uh, when it comes down to the House of Urology. So the House of Urology needs to stand united. Uh, we need to stand with one voice and make sure that whatever we are saying, that we're in agreement uh, and that CMS only hears one message coming from all three of those organizations. And we've been really uh, able to do that the last couple of years. Um, really appreciated working with all of the staff over at AACU uh, and LUGPA. Um, they've been fantastic to work with. Uh, before we actually do our, our fee schedule comments, for example, we actually sit down with them. We share our letters back and forth um, and just kind of pick out things like, oh, we missed this. Or are you guys going to comment on that? It's OK. We're, we're coming from this direction. Is that OK? Um, and everybody you know, uh, seems to work well with that, that system so far. Sure. And, you know, one of the conversations we have when we get together for policy meetings amongst you know, you know, folks who are involved in, in legislative advocacy and policy are the importance of the surveys, the RUC surveys. And again, for the listeners, the, the RUC stands for the Relative Value Update Committee, which is a, a committee of the, uh, the AMA that values CPT codes. Um, and they value new CPT codes, but they also sometimes bring old codes back for reevaluation. And most of that valuation is dependent, very dependent on surveys that are done of the, the population of practicing urologists. And so you will get emails from the AUA, sometimes from the AACU saying, hey, please participate in this survey. It may take you 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and the ask is to be honest with your volume and be really honest with your times. You know, the goal here is not to say you're the speediest guy in the world. You may be, you know, very efficient, but be realistic about what are the average times it takes you in terms of the work to do these things. I mean, these surveys are incredibly important and they notoriously have very low um, return rates. Speak, can you speak a little bit for the audience on, on the just to, to underscore the importance of not trashing those surveys? Because I think a lot of people, we're all busy and we're all stretched for time and we got a lot of patients to see and we want to get home and live our lives after we see our patients. And one more email from the AUA about a, a survey that you don't really recognize is very tempting just to hit delete. Uh, but we are shooting ourselves in the foot when we do that. If there's one email that I would urge you not to delete, it's the RUC survey. Please fill it out. Please be honest, because the, it's the it can make or break the difference between a favorable valuation of a RUC code, or you know a, a low response rate. The RUC committee says, "Hey, you didn't you didn't you guys didn't care enough to actually respond to this. We're going to downgrade you." Is that accurate? And, and please talk to that. Yeah. So first off, you're my favorite person right now uh, because you're bringing this up. This is so incredibly vital, and you hit the nail on the head. We need to respond to these RUC surveys um, honestly. We need to respond with your average time, not your fastest time or your slowest time if you're doing a procedure. It really needs to be, you know, sort of the the, the basic undertaking uh, of the procedure. 
if we do not get enough responses, the survey will not count. We have to resurvey again. We actually send out, depending on the utilization for that particular uh, procedure, we can send anywhere between 1,000 to 5,000 requests for surveys. And we're hoping to get between, again, depending on the, the number of utilizations, we're hoping to get anywhere between 30 to 60 responses. Um, and we oftentimes, or in the past, would struggle to do that. I think we've done a lot of work to educate everyone, this podcast included, about the value of participating in those surveys. And our, our survey responses in the last several surveys that we've conducted have been great. Um, and I'm, I'm, it, it makes it so much easier for our RUC team to go up uh, in front of the editorial panel um, and sort of present our case when we can show that the data is there to back up what we're asking for. Um, so that's fantastic. Um, I want to move on to sort of another point we touched on earlier with respect to you've done a lot of work with patient advocacy groups. And I think this is one of the best advents sort of in, in advocacy. I've been doing advocacy, you know, in urology at the, at the national level for, for a long time. And when I started, you know, patient groups were out there, but there was no collaboration. There was really no crosstalk. And it's so important that we start working together. And I think the AOA has made huge gains. I mean, they're, they're a very prominent presence now at the AUA and at the Advocacy Summit. We've got patients groups there. We've got people at the table and we're starting to really have conversations together. They've got podium time at our meetings. And I, and I think it's incredibly critical because one, one of the things I advise advocates, whether you're going to your state house to talk to a representative or if you're going to Capitol Hill to talk to a, a representative or a member of uh, the Senate, uh, patient stories, which again, from their perspective, from these lawmakers' perspectives are constituent stories. And it's important that you understand that distinction. There are patients. We care very deeply about the care of our patients. These politicians care about really two things. Politicians care about votes and they care about money. And so leave the money thing aside. In terms of votes, they want to do constituent service and they want their constituents to like them. And so when they hear constituent stories, you, you pique their attention. So we can talk all day long about data and about how um, you know, costs are way outstripping reimbursements and all of this sort of vague general things about how the house of medicine is struggling. But when we have a specific ask and we have a patient story to go with it, uh, a patient, your constituent was in my office and this happened to them because of, of whatever policy failure or whatever legislative failure that resonates with them. And we need to start speaking more in those terms when we're in our state capitals and when we're on Capitol Hill and it's the patient advocacy groups that are really going to help us de develop those things and, and develop that messaging. Um, one of my asks of the listeners today is that a lot of you will be actively involved in advocacy and start, start collecting those patient stories and bring them with you to the state capitol, bring them with you to Capitol Hill. But if you're a listener who hasn't been really actively involved in advocacy, but you're generally interested in this stuff, you may have a patient in front of you say, hey, this is a perfect example of this policy failure. Write down the basics and email it to me or to any one of us who are involved in state or federal advocacy, because what we need to do really proactively is start collecting these patient stories with the help of our, our patient advocate partners, uh, because it's an incredibly powerful form of advocacy. And we're coming to understand that. And I think we're starting to do better with that. That's one of the messages I want to leave with the listeners today is that um, when you have a patient example in your office of a failure, maybe it's a, a, prior, a prior authorization delay in care that led to some harm. Those are great stories to write down and either use them yourself or if, if you don't make it to your state capitol or to Capitol Hill, 
email them to one of us. And again, I'll provide my contact information at the end. Um, email them to us so we can, we can use those stories because they're, they're, they're incredibly powerful. So um, if, if you could just talk a little bit more, Ray, about you know, the, the evolution over time of the, the addition of the patient voice to what we do um, on a national level and how important that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the patient voice really is there to stand alongside the voice of the urologist. And I think I alluded to this at the very beginning when I kind of did the introduction, but the patients care about the same things our AUA members care about, our AACU members care about, LUGPA members care about. They want access to those treatments that are out there. They don't want to pay an arm and a leg for them. They want to be able to afford them. Um, and they want to find cures for things that they've been diagnosed with. And so do our docs. Uh, and so we really recognize where we have those similarities, where we have those areas of agreement, and we, we try to figure out the ways that we can best work together. And so far, we've done, a, I think, a, a really good job uh, bringing patients in, uh, having them speak to AUA members, uh, having them go into meetings with AUA members, just having the, the discussion with, with uh, doctors and patients, uh, you know, at a, a more relaxed level, not in, in the, you know, in the office or in the clinic, but rather, you know, for example, we had a patient MC Connections program right before the summit. Uh, we actually had a networking event uh, that Sunday night after all the committee meetings were done. I budgeted for 40 people to show up, 150 showed up instead. And it was great because we had a bunch of patients there. We had about 20 groups. Uh, and then we had a, a good number of urologists there, and it was a relaxed setting where they talked about things they cared about. They talked about advocacy initiatives. They talked about what's happening in prostate cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, anywhere between research appropriation funding to uh, things like copay accumulator programs, prior authorization issues, the gambit. And what will end up happening or what we're really driving towards, and we're trying to do this very strategically, is bringing patients with urologists to the Hill, to state capitals, and sitting them in front of their own actual representatives to do exactly what you're talking about. This is, I'm, we're both constituents. We both care about this. I'm the doctor who treats patients like this. This is what I see from my, from my practice. These are the, the troubles I'm running into in my practice. Now hear from this patient who is very similar to somebody I might treat if not my patient. Here's their concerns. This is the same problem they're having. They're just seeing it from a different perspective. How can you help us? This is this is a solution we have for you as well. Here's a bill that we want you to co-sponsor. You know, here's uh, you know something we want you to do. Here's funding we want you to appropriate to a specific research program. Uh, and we're seeing that starting to happen. And I think we're just going to see that increase as time moves forward because we're seeing so many areas where patients want to engage and so many areas where doctors want to engage with those patients. Fantastic. Yeah, it, it's an incredibly important advent in, in, in evolution in our advocacy and, and incredibly powerful. And I, and I look forward to sort of pushing that envelope further as time goes on. Um, again, I'm talking with Director of Policy and Advocacy for the AUA, Ray Wesick. Um, Ray, as we wind down here, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk to a sort of another area of your expertise, the interactions with CMS. Um, and and the, the nuances of dealing with regulatory agencies are a little bit different than dealing with Congress. Um, there, there are just some, some, some constraints and confinements um, that we deal with. And, and one of the issues that, that came up, this was probably, I don't know, eight months or a year ago that I emailed you was the whole notion of the inpatient only lists uh, for certain procedures. And it's, it's something that's kind of waxed back and forth. Um, over the last couple presidential administrations, the list has actually flopped around a little bit. One of, you know, one of the interests for some integrated practice is starting to explore the notion of something like robotic prostatectomy in an ASC setting, for example. Um, and the, the barrier we've run into is that robotic prostatectomy is currently back on the inpatient only list. 
And so the question is, how do we sort of work together and, and, and ask CMS to sort of reconsider this? And I, we had this conversation, and I think you, you had had some conversations with CMS, and CMS kind of came back with, with their reasoning. But, but I think it was a, a very insightful, informative case example of the challenges of working with CMS, you know, versus Congress. If you could sort of, sort of rehash sort of, you know, CM, you know, our ask of CMS and what, sort of what they came back with and what they suggested for us, I think it'd be informative for the viewers. Sure. And, and there's actually many examples of this. So with the inpatient only list, or really in, in dealing with CMS in general, you really have to recognize again that they are bound by certain constraints. They are given power by Congress to uh, act within their authority as a regulatory agency. Uh, and so they have to re-examine that authority often when they look at things like, uh, you know, making additions to the inpatient only list or moving certain procedures over there um, and deciding whether or not they're going to reimburse for whatever we're asking them for. When you talk to CMS, you know, some, some people kind of want to yell and scream and say, why, why aren't you doing the thing we want you to do? Uh, and I, I always find that to never really work very well because you're automatically putting normal people. I mean, they're, they're folks just like you and I into a position where they're defensive um, and they're being, you know, kind of asked to do something that may or may not make sense, but now they, they're sort of not really listening to you anymore. So we've always taken the approach from the AUA of, of being a little bit more, um, you know, kind uh, and understanding when it comes to CMS, but also firm where we need to be. And we also recognize that if CMS feels that their regulatory authority only goes so far, well, the people who gave them that regulatory authority is who you should go speak to next. So the thing I kind of think about is, um, and I think we emailed about this as well, but the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed, or I'm sorry, the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act, which passed in November of 2021, um, included a provision for wasted units that essentially told CMS that they needed to get reimbursed by manufacturers if a percentage of the uh, product that was being utilized by medicine in general um, was being a certain amount of it was being wasted. And I believe it was something like 10%. And the, we were a little concerned about this uh, because we weren't sure where this might fall within the realm of urology. And it turned out that Jill Mito um, w basically became the poster child for this issue because CMS, when they created uh, the fee schedule, which is how they were taking that legislation, that, they, that directive they got from Congress and turning it into a regulatory initiative, um, is they put gel mito as the example and said, here's a you know kidney cancer or upper urinary tract uh, treatment using glass vials and a percentage of the um, treatment is actually sticking to the vial. And therefore, this would classify as a uh, wasted unit. Uh, and therefore, the manufacturer would have to reimburse. Well, we had talked to the manufacturer. They acknowledged that if they had to reimburse for every one of these treatments that they essentially would go under um, and that this would no longer be viable business uh, for them to continue to conduct, which then turns into an access issue for patients. So we actually had a conversation with CMS. We had a conversation with the manufacturer and uh, we were happy to see that in the fee schedule, um, you know, CMS recognized that this would be a problem for this particular treatment. They used that as an example to say, we're going to give an exception to the legislation and to the regulation we were forming uh, in order to allow this treatment to still be uh, administered without, you know, essentially putting this company out of business. Um, and they allowed up to 20% wastage, uh, recognizing the, just the, the manufacturing process alone leads to that 20% naturally. There's no way unless you sit there for 20 minutes or so and hold the vial upside down and let it slow drip 
Um, and I'm making that up. I don't know if that would actually work. You get that last little bit out of the jar, essentially. And, um, you know, that, that sort of solved our problem. But that's a really great example of, you know, CMS getting handed down orders from Congress, having to implement them, recognizing that even what they were going to implement may not work, having the regulatory authority and discretion to make changes within their bounds uh, to what was handed to them, and then, you know, finding a solution and moving forward. Now, the inpatient codes, we haven't gotten to that solution yet, but it might be an instance where we need to go to Congress and have a conversation and say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're hitting a roadblock. Uh, this isn't exactly what we were looking for. Uh, you know, is, is there something we can do here? Is there conversations that the members of Congress who are on the oversight committee for CMS or HHS, you know, could have conversations with? There's other instances of that as well with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, you continue to see legislation directing regulation, developing into regulation that we comment on and then having to come back around. And so there's a lot of back and forth between Congress and, uh, and agencies. Fantastic. That, that's great. That's, that's really insightful. And, and I think really gives the audience, um, you know, some inside baseball on, on what happens really out of visibility for most of our day-to-day -day practices. There's a tremendous amount of work that the AUA does interacting with CMS um, and with our federal advocacy. You know, the, the our federal advocates, you know, we, we, we get together at the, the AUA summit every year um, and, and we, you know, we visit offices, but day-to-day -day, we've got an entire staff that it's their day-to-day -day job to actually inter interact with members of Congress and interact with the agencies and raise at the forefront of that. And so it's a little bit of uh, just a sort of inside view of, of, of what happens on a day-to-day -day basis and, and, and how much benefit um, folks like Ray uh, provide to practicing urologists, the house urology. And so, uh, so Ray, I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I think that'll conclude our conversation. I think it was a, very, a great wide-ranging conversation with a lot of great information. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I'm uh, really honored to be your first guest and you know, wish you the best of luck on the rest of your podcast. I appreciate it. All right, we'll conclude. Thanks again for joining us for The Modern Urologist and look forward to seeing you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Myriad Genetics. If you'd like to learn more about our genetic testing solutions to personalize prostate cancer treatment, visit myriad.com. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to share, subscribe, or leave us a review. Until next time.